The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work changes us. Back when I was covering technology's rising stars, there were certain coaches that founders relied on. You wouldn't hear their names necessarily when you learned about the startups. But their advice and their steady presence, it was crucial in helping founders blossom into the leaders capable of managing big companies as they grew. And if you asked founders, well, they'd usually tell you who they worked with. And often, it would be folks like today's guest, Jerry Colonna. Earlier in his own career, Jerry founded a company. He spent years as an investor. He has credibility because he's done this work. But Jerry also has a novel approach. In a hustle culture that has prized grinding it, startups often do, Jerry asks people to look inward to chart their feelings, to be vulnerable. He regularly makes CEOs cry, and they love it. They come back for more. I invited Jerry into the studio to talk about leadership. He's just released a new book called Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong. Jerry's vision of leadership requires us to redefine the term itself. It's less about how successful a person or a company can be financially, Successful leadership in Jerry's experience. It expands agency, it reduces suffering, and it invites everyone to feel they belong. Jerry asks leaders, and to be clear here, we are all leaders, to ask hard questions of ourselves. He helps us examine our roles in the systems around us, our offices, our communities. Here's Jerry. I have been speaking about an aspect of that redefinition of leadership for decades. Yeah. The motivation behind changing the definition and expanding the definition of what successful leadership had to do as much with reducing suffering in the individual and the individuals whom they are privileged to lead. The real expansion was to realize and to really internalize the fact that the possibility exists to redefine the objective of leadership, to to leave the world, if you will, better than you found it. <laughs> so that's the first thing I would say. So it's a it's it's kind of a an expansion of the concentric circles, if you will. The first circle being take care of your own demons. The second circle being so that you don't create toxic conditions for those who have less power, who are down power positions than you. Mm -hmm. The third concentric circle begins to touch upon the world around us. I'll bring you back to something that Parker Palmer, who is my teacher and friend, taught me many years ago, which was that violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with suffering. And I often add violence to ourselves, violence to each other, and violence to the planet. But it's those second concentric circles, those further out circles, that I really wanted to spend time with. 
Now to your question of, is it really possible? I don't know. The God's honest truth is, I don't know. But if you remember, one of the quotes that shaped me was a quote from the Talmud, which I will remember imperfectly, but is in the book, which is, it is not yours to finish the work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect the work. Feels perfectly fitting for this moment. So then to the idea of the work. Yeah. What is the work? Again, we'll pull up the James Baldwin quote. It's that notion that we have to do our first works over, that we have to re-examine ourselves and our position in the world. Um, The word that comes to mind is this notion of practice. Leadership as a practice of becoming something better than you are. So I, I actually want to spend a few minutes with this idea of first works because it was so central to really everything that the book is inviting the reader to explore. So this idea of first works came from James Baldwin. Tell us the story. So uh, I will uh, quote it imperfectly, but uh, Baldwin wrote a brilliant essay called The Price of the Ticket. Specifically, he speaks to the price of the ticket of whiteness. And just that construct is an important construct because he's acknowledging or he's teaching that the conceit of whiteness is something that we move towards, that we have, that many of us, and more specifically, many of our ancestors moved towards. And what he explores in that is that there's a cost associated with the ticket. Think of the golden ticket, think of the entry price. Hmm. And what is lost, the cost, is identity, is knowing from whence you came, which is such a powerful notion that, oh, right, we weren't always who we are, especially if we expand the notion of we to include our ancestors. We weren't always in this place. So understanding the fact of this, the fact that we, perhaps for the listener who is listening, who is living centrally in the midst of and benefiting from like a dominant mainstream culture, that we, we didn't begin here. And that if we trace our ancestry back, inevitably, nearly everyone, maybe you would say everyone, if we do so honestly, can trace our ancestry back to a point when we were othered and eventually sort of tease out the pain that we experienced in that and thus release ourselves from reissuing that pain. Yes, and I think it's a little bit more nuanced. Um, first of all, the tracing the ancestry thing. Yeah. Um, we need to acknowledge that because of enforced diaspora, because of movements like um, immigration for survival purposes, yeah. very often the traces are, are lost to us. Yep. And so the reunion process, as I describe it, isn't dependent upon you knowing 
all of the facts, right? Oh, my great-great-grandfather was a carpenter in blah, blah, blah. I had three friends contribute essays yeah. in the afterward. One of the contributors, Virginia Bauman, asked a searing question, which is, what happened to my queer ancestors in the family tree? Because they were there, but they're not remembered. And simply the act of asking that question, even if it's not possible to answer that question, is part of doing our first works over. Because in my experience, coming from and living in a dominant heteronormative binary gender structure, the possibility that people don't fit that structure but were my, in fact, blood relatives didn't even enter my consciousness. Mm. Mm -hmm. So why does it matter, Jerry? Because, and that's a great setup to the second half of the question, because people are dying, literally. People are dying. Babies are being shot because we are scared of other people. We fight about our broken immigration policy and as a result, we demonize a, a, a mother from Guatemala or Venezuela trying to cross the Rio Grande laced with razor wire. The problem is because we don't remember, and you can think of that word as our hyphen member, yeah. reconnect with them, we fail to have an empathy that is much more profound than sympathy. And this is when we dehumanize. We dehumanize each other. And so many of the external prompts that we receive in this moment in history reinforce our ability to do that, right? I know who I am because I am not that. I'm right. not you. My decisions are not we, yours. We define ourselves in opposition to each other, and it makes it possible to ignore razor wire at the Rio Grande. Yeah. It feels sometimes like we have to in order to survive. I mean, Jerry, how do you not cry every day? What makes you think I don't? Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I was actually writing to a friend this morning. And uh, in my Buddhist lineage, there is a concept called bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is the open heart. And the reason we close our hearts is because it's painful to open our hearts. But... I owe it to my descendants to keep my heart open, even though it's painful. I owe it. I don't want to leave the world with my children feeling, or my grandchildren feeling like they have to protest to make sure that they have the right to marry the person that they love, or, or to, write, to, to fight for their right to vote. Things that we took for granted, things that we take for granted. I think it scares me as much to think that my children may think they don't have to protest on behalf of people who don't share their problems or look like them. Uh, That's because, because you're a fierce mother <laughs> <laughs> in all the good ways. You know, I think of your daughter, Emma, yeah. who prompted you to write this book. And so you do two things in this book. You, you trace your own story and in the process... Um, you reveal, as you often do when you write, um, the stories of 
people that you've impacted and worked with. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit about the significance of tracing your own history here. You learned quite a bit about yourself. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, I, I, I think that a, a sort of organizing principle to whatever it is that I do is that I cannot ask somebody to do something that I myself am not willing to do. Mm. It feels inauthentic and out of integrity. And in my first book, the first book was retrospective. Here is what happened. Here is what I've learned. Here is how I apply that to the work that I do with my clients. In this book, I was kind of documenting a process that was underway for me. And along the way, picking up new signals and understanding my clients' challenges. So you mentioned early on that this is in some ways a letter to myself. Well, it's also a letter to my clients, especially those who occupy bodies like mine. What do you say? How can you possibly be? Because the impulse to say, it's just business, no talking about protests and Slack channels, is so strong that it's wrong. But it's wrong. Just because it's strong doesn't mean th there is a middle way. There is a way to talk about these things and hold the maintain the container of the business. But there's a corollary to this, which when I, I think about doing the process of as I put it, reuniting with the true stories of your ancestors, there is this process of being able to reframe, to use a coaching term, their experiences so that they can become, as I write poetically, elders in your life. And when I look at, and so much of the work I do is about dealing with toxic conditions within work environments, when I look at some of the root causes of that, what we lack is an elder to say, sit up straight, wear clean underwear, and don't be a jerk, <laughs> right? Be kind. Yep. Even be open to the possibility of being wrong. Be open to the possibility that those folks discussing a protest or a war or a shooting on your Slack channels may have something to teach you. And I think that that goes a long way to not only creating the possibility of systemic belonging, but a lowering of the toxic heat that passes for leadership in so many of our organizations. Toxic heat that passes for leadership. Yeah. So what does that mean? It means either explicitly or implicitly criticizing people for not sleeping under their desk for not being, I'm going to use it, the phrase, hardcore, and calling that leadership. It means demanding levels of focus that prize output and outcome over the experience of being in an organization. Mm -hmm. it, it means denying the joy of collaborative creativity. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to discuss epigenetic trauma and how it affects our leadership. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. As Jerry builds his broader approach to leadership, he's not only asking us to take a look at our own processes and habits, he asks us to consider our parents and even our grandparents. Epigenetic trauma is the idea that what our ancestors experienced can resonate through our own lives. To help us see what that might look like in leadership, Jerry tells a story of a particular client. This client was struggling with his team. The big takeaway from the performance review was basically, this guy can't take the wins. Nothing is ever good enough. Here's what happened next and why understanding it was so key to transforming the guy's leadership style. Once again, here's Jerry Colonna. As we started to unpack it, what we connected back to was that his grandparents had escaped a genocide, a pogrom. And the message he got was, don't let down your guard, because the knock on the door can come at any moment. The result was, he can't relax. And you can't celebrate if you can't relax. Now, we all know leaders who are just like this character that I just described. Yep. Okay. And last week, I was doing a talk. And I described this character, and one man started crying. And I said, okay, what's going on for you? And his grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And for the first time, he he got the feedback. Your team would like you to learn how to relax. Your team would like to celebrate more. The problem is, without that, as you describe it, epigenetic connection, that intergenerational trauma, he didn't understand where it came from. So all it became was something that he became defensive about. I just hold high standards. No one asked him until we encountered this. No one asked him, well, what's the danger of letting go of those standards? The danger is I will be wiped out. Yeah. He probably didn't know for himself that he was holding that answer. That's right. 
So then what happens when you discover that, at least for this client? I mean, is yeah, it yeah, is yeah. just freedom ensue? I somehow no, doubt it. No, no. <laughs> and as I, as I often say is uh, cognitive awareness of our structures doesn't create transformation. But without cognitive awareness, transformation is impossible. I just want to stop here to emphasize what Jerry just said. Figuring out some of this stuff, where our beliefs come from, why we hold on to them, it doesn't solve our problems. But until we do that part, we can't begin to do the work to solve those problems. What creates transformation is self-compassion and hard work and to bring us all the way back, radical self-inquiry. Being able to say, huh, what's really going on for me? What is the benefit that I get from not being able to relax? Right. That, see, that question creates a cognitive dissonance in people. Oh, the benefit is I feel safe. Well, that's an interesting assertion. And then, of course, the real magic is, could you be safe and relaxed? Right. Jerry, the subtitle of your book is Leadership and the Longing to Belong. We're talking a lot about leadership. I suspect we're actually talking a lot about the longing to belong, but what do you mean by that? You know, I, I played with a couple of different titles, as you do, and for a while it was The Journey to Belonging. And I specifically chose not to go down that path because I wanted to speak to the universality that we all experience. We all wish to know to whom and to where we belong. And, and what belonging means, belonging means your children don't have to worry about their parents' marriage being dissolved right. because you go to a different state. Belonging means I am safe. I have a colleague who cannot travel to the state of Florida because she's afraid of being arrested by choosing what bathroom she chooses to use. That's not belonging. Right. So um, on behalf of that colleague and on behalf of all the people around us who in any way are feeling less safe by the ways in which the world is actively changing right now, and 2023 has been a big year for it. Yes. Um, what does leadership look like there? If those of us who have power are not cognizant and conscious of exactly what you just said, then we are failing not only as leaders, but as better humans. Because what does it profit a man to gain the world to, if they lose a soul in the process, right? What is the point of it all? Right. More toys at the end of the game of life? More money in the bank? Right. Um. One of the very first stories I did journalistically um, for a magazine was Business Week magazine. It was 2003. It was a profile that I actually helped a more senior writer write on a guy named Chuck Feeney. And he was your quintessential billionaire. He became so rich, just hand over fist rich. He had limousines and he had houses in something like five different countries. And then he threw up his hands and gave it all away. He succeeded, didn't he? Seems it. Seems it. But I have to tell you, it takes a lot of radical courage, and courage is not even the right word, 
it takes the ability to see the world differently than the way culture sees it for you to trust yourself enough to give it away. And the it here is money, power, fame, and just the act of climbing. Now you work with powerful people, sometimes famous people, people who are certainly climbing. How do you help them to be present in the roles they're in, but also embrace this broader approach to leading humanity? There's a famous question from Reboot, which I redid for Reunion. The question in Reboot was, how have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? The new version of that is, how have I been complicit in and benefited from the conditions in the world I say I do not want? But the corollary question is equally important. What am I willing to give up that I love in order to see that world come into being? And what's important about internalizing that is the recognition that we all need, as Chuck did, to give up something that we may, in fact, love or be attached to, like status, like power, like the safety that comes from being unchallenged yeah. in order that the people that I really care about through my broken, open heart, my bodhicitta, can have a semblance of love, safety, and belonging. I, it, this is one of those points where uh, I don't know that I'll personally ever be finished or that we will ever finish this process. Right. But um, I don't want to die not having tried. You know, Jerry, there are many other people in the world. I'm, I'm one of them who connect with you and mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I recognize what you're asking me to do. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lesbian from the Northeast, <laughs> right? right? Like, <laughs> I get this. You want me to talk about my feelings. Like, I am here for it. You want to cry? I can cry, right? <laughs> but I think about that a lot in the context of masculinity and power and what you said about truly making way for the world as it could be rather than the world as it is means giving up some of the things that you love. And love isn't even the right word. Attach. You, some of the things that you have grown to understand, right? Mm -hmm. And that inspires uh, terror. It can be really, really messy. It can be awful. And I would even say the lion's share of people who start down that path don't really want to finish. I think that's true. Um, so here you are writing about these things as a white man. I'm just going to say as a rich white man, Jerry. As a rich, straight, cisgender, white man. What gives you the right to talk about this stuff? Can I reframe the question? Please. How do I not have an obligation to talk about this stuff? Because... Part of the systemic oppressive structure, and you know this as well as anybody, is that the emotional labor requisite to change our culture is always thrust on the people who bear the burden. Yep. And, you know, if I have generated a modicum of credibility among white, straight, maybe straight, who knows, cisgender men. Trust me when I say to you, this is our work to do. Now, yeah. my hope is that that is not the only audience that responds to reunion, 
But I will tell you that um, I know where the work has to be done. So it is my obligation. And in, and, in a, and in the same fashion, if it turns out that I'm wrong in what I'm asserting, stay open to the critique. Yeah. Stay open to the feedback. Right. Right. When you say, I know where the work has to be done, um, I don't want to assume. Mm. I mean, I've read everything you've ever written and I've written about <laughs> you, but I don't want to assume that I, that I know where the work has to be done. The work has to be done with the people who hold power. You know, I was talking last week and, and someone said, well, this is a very American point of view. It's okay. And it was a white man from Finland, right? And so, look, it is possible that people who don't look like me are in a dominant position and therefore have the work to do. But I think it's a, it's, it's a, moral responsibility of those who hold power in a certain circumstance mm. to hold themselves to a standard. What does it mean, if not this, to be a better human? Mm. Look at all of our wisdom traditions, whatever you want to call it, spirituality or religious, whatever. They all call us to be better than what we are. What does it mean, if not to lean into the practice, this hard, hard, sharp edge. I mean, I'll personalize it. Why have I been sitting on my ass for 20 years in meditation if not to do this work right. so that I can somehow feel better? I mean, yes, but really? <laughs> well, it's the both and there, Jerry, right? Because partly you have done it to save yourself. Yes. And... Also, when we save ourselves, we save the world. That's it. And when we save the world, we save ourselves. Yeah. Because your story is my story. Right. Because we are interconnected, interdependent upon each other. I have a task for you. I want to leave you with a task. Okay. You've written Reboot. You've written Reunion. And I would now like you to start on a new book called Repair. <laughs> in which you begin to help us understand once we have done this work how we work towards um, making right we're real good I, the Me Too movement I'm, it's really mm. sort of very present for me just based on where I was in my career as it was all happening in my mid-late 30s you know um, we've, we became so good at cutting perpetrators off at their kneecaps mm. and you know, and that spiraled into like cancellation as a cultural norm. And we have no way to work back to each other. We have no agreed upon sanctified way That's right. to find ourselves back to each other. That's right. And without that, the work doesn't matter at all. Well, and without that, people who hold power may be terrified to actually take up the emotional labor that we were talking about before. If you don't have the freedom to be wrong, you cannot lead. That's right. That's right. And, and yeah, can I add to that? If you don't have the freedom to be wrong, you cannot be human. And that's something that we can't take away from each other or ourselves in this generation. That's right. That was Jerry Colonna. His newest book, Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong, is out now. It's a must read. I find myself profoundly grateful to be having and sharing this conversation in particular. 
at this time in the world and in the year. World events are terrifying and devastating, and it feels easy to backslide into a kind of despair. But this conversation gives me some hope about the potential we all have to affect positive change in our own communities. Here are a few of my top takeaways. First, to be better leaders, we have to understand our impact, especially our impact on people in a system who have less power than we might. And then we have to strive to do better by those people. Second, we benefit when we are willing to understand how our intergenerational trauma or adverse experiences play out in our own lives. Understanding the hurt that has been passed down to us gives us a fighting chance to avoid passing that same hurt down to younger generations. Finally, Jerry asks two profoundly powerful questions. First, How have we been complicit in and benefited from creating conditions that we say we do not want? And second, what are we willing to give up to bring about a better world? As we answer these questions, we grow. So let's talk about all of this, and let's talk in particular about how we take care of one another this week at Office Hours. I'll go live on the LinkedIn news page this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, along with our producer, Sarah Storm. If you're not sure where to find the link, drop us a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com, and we'll help you out. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, Michaela Greer works hard to ensure that our whole team feels like we belong. Enrique Montavo is our executive director. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. We officiated it ourselves. Wow under the cottonwood, which I write about, under the cottonwood tree that's at the center of the farm. And and then we had a little dinner and it was very, very moving, very simple, very intimate, quiet. We had, you know, 50 family members but um, and friends. But um, given the size of my family, that's small. <laughs> and... Uh, um, we just sort of looked at each other and, and we didn't expect to feel different, but we felt different. Yeah. And what we both felt was settled. Yeah. Like, oh, you're my person. And we kind of knew that, but yeah. it's like the questions are settled. Yeah. And so when she uses the term husband or I use the term wife, um, it's quite powerful.